So this morning we look to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 to 16, and I have entitled this sermon, Imitating Christ, Imitating Christ. So what we're looking at today is largely centered around what Paul calls the Corinthians and the believers in the church to do, and that is particularly in verse 1 of chapter 11, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. For Paul... It was his hope to bring the Corinthians to this point. And this point uh, is how do they conduct themselves in Christ and like Christ within the fellowship? So that's what he wanted them to essentially imitate because that's what he was placing before him. Again, it was how do they conduct themselves in Christ and like Christ within the fellowship? Whereas before Paul considered how the Christian may steer clear of adult of idolatry related to food and pagan worship as it sought inroads into the life of the church. Here he is starting to move forward toward how males and females conduct themselves in fellowship toward one another with the understanding that there is a distinction that God has created when he created man and woman. Yet also we see the overtones of partiality because what is presented before us in that second verse, you see where it says, now I praise you because you remember me in everything. Paul is certainly commending them, but he's also about to correct something. He's about to correct something that they have done that has caused them to steer clear and steer away from uh, the original mandate that he had set before them. So he wants them to remember what he's called them to. He wants them not to forget, but he also wants to root out any of the jealousy and partiality uh, that is among them, because that's really what's causing them to be divided in how they fellowship with one another. So you see the overtones of partiality, but Paul contends against that. And he also does so specifically related to fellowship, the area of fellowship among the Christians. So on one side of it, you have this partiality. And then on the other side of it, you have Paul seeking to correct that partiality by explaining what true fellowship looks like and why one ought not to be contentious about matters that are not really uh, particularly uh, influencing uh, in the positive sense how we ought to fellowship. In fact, many of the things that Paul corrects, he's correcting because of the factions, and he actually brings it up further along in our text. So then our context this morning is highly cultural. It's a highly cultural context, and I want to say that Uh, In this way, that is to say, Paul is dealing with cultural things unique to the Corinthians and their church. But there are also areas where you and I may learn how to treat one another within the context of Christian fellowship overall. So there are matters in this letter, in this particular context and throughout this letter where Paul is speaking specifically to his audience. However, the reach beyond his audience is. How then might you and I apply what is said in the area of fellowship as we imitate Paul just as he imitated Christ? So in this, first, Paul commended them in the areas where they were faithful to his teachings. Look at verse two. Now, I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. And so obviously we see that there are many areas with which the Corinthians were fighting against some things that Paul had presented. And where we are in the epistle uh, to the Corinthians at this point is 
For the most part, they have been faithful in maintaining what Paul has asked of them. For the most part, there are certainly the grievances that took place, but you see people such as Chloe's people stepping forward and representing the truth in Christ and wanting to see a pure and true and lasting eternal fellowship among the Christians. And yet you also see this fight against that among some in the church of Corinth. So I don't want to give the picture that the whole church is corrupt to this point. They will be at some point corrupted and they're certainly vulnerable to that type of attack of infiltration uh, with respect to the enemy. But for the most part, they are a church seeking to be faithful to Christ and where they steer away from that. Paul is trying to steer them back to that. So what he's saying here is very much true. Now, I praise you because you remember me and everything. He's not just saying that to soften them so that he can deliver a blow. He's being honest with them. He's saying you have certainly remembered me and you have held firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Now, as we look at this, I want you to consider as we approach Corinthians even further, even to this point, much of what Paul is correcting they have heard before. And a lot of what Paul is dealing with are counter arguments against what he's already established within the church. So they're beginning to doubt some of the things that he's saying. It's not that they're hearing it for the first time. He's not speaking to them as though they're hearing things for the first time. He's not speaking to them as if this is merely an introduction between he and them. In fact, in chapter one of first Corinthians, he goes into the very intimate details of their salvation, and he's very much acquainted with how they became Christians, but he's also very much acquainted with how he has to walk with them through so many things. So for Paul to know all the issues they're dealing with, you know that there's a relationship between Paul and the Corinthians. But you also recognize that there are things that they ought to know, which is why in the previous chapters that we looked at, he invokes Israel. He says, remember Israel. Well, Israel's problem was that they knew they knew many things and they were very much acquainted with God in certain ways. But with all that intimacy and with all that uh, fact that God was was eminent, that is to be present among them. And the fact that God was certainly transcendent, not simply a buddy of theirs. It was this idea that they had to worship God where they were and they had to remember what God's will was as he dictated it to them. So there was a familiarity that was supposed to take place between the people of Israel and the God of Israel. Well, it's the same thing here in Corinthians. There's a familiarity that must take place with respect to their fellowship because they're in Christ. They have Paul proclaiming things to them, and they're very much acquainted with what they're supposed to do. So Paul's saying you should be moving past where you are with respect to your maturation. But they are a church who does settle. They settle for things that perhaps God doesn't have for them at times, and it puts them in a sinful place and in a disobedient place. But most of all, Paul is thankful for the positive that he sees in them because it truly is a positive, some of the attributes that he invokes. He commends them because to be faithful to his teachings was to be faithful to Christ. Christ is who gave Paul the teaching, and Christ is whom Paul wanted to imitate and he wanted them to imitate. But in what ways? How were they to be like Paul? But more so, how were they to be like Christ? Because that's who Paul wanted to be like. We will find the specific areas here in our text, mainly what precedes verse 1 of chapter 11. 
And if you were to look at those group of verses above that we looked at the last time we were together, you would see in kind of our section last time was verses 23 to 33. You will see that here are some of the areas that Paul wanted them to imitate Christ. They were to aspire to holiness. They were to aspire to holiness because that's true of Christ and that's true of whom Christ has saved. They were to aspire to humble fellowship. A humble fellowship, a humility in their love and fellowship with one another. They were to have a genuine self-sacrificial love for one another, a genuine self-sacrificial love for one another. So when Paul says imitate me as I Christ or just as I just as I also am of Christ, he is destroying the faction on one hand. Because remember, the Paul faction and the Christ faction were separate. But he's also saying this is what is true of Christ. And this is what is true of those who belong to Christ. And so he wants them to be humble in their fellowship. He wants them to be holy. He wants them to have a self-sacrificial love for one another. And a lot of what he calls them to can be summed up in those ways. There's certainly more things that are happening, but he wants their imitation to be toward holiness. Imitation has to be toward holiness, for in Christ is perfect holiness. Imitation to love the brethren, for in Paul we see even in this letter and other letters where we have studied concerning Paul the Apostle's teaching to the church, Paul's love for the brethren was evident. We didn't have to guess. We didn't have to think about it. We don't have to overanalyze and figure it out. He really does love the brethren, and in fact, he says that. He says how much he loves the church and he says how much he loves those who are even lost. But particularly, he has an intentional and acting love because uh, love is an action. It's not simply words. He has an acting love toward the church and his love for the church at large was clear. His love for the church at not just not the benefits of the church, not simply loving the idea of church or loving to be one who is seen and perceived as an expert on church matters for that's who men are today. But he actually loved the church. He loved the people who Christ had saved and had brought them before his word. And he loved the church. Well, why? Because Christ loves the church. So Paul wanted the Corinthians to imitate that. And you see that flowing through his teaching to them. So then Paul also wanted them to do what followed. That is to continue to persevere in the teaching and the traditions. Hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Well, here he's not simply saying traditionalism. He's not saying traditionalism, but rather the traditions that flowed from the teaching. Those things that you and I are supposed to do practically as evidence of obedience to that which is taught, our sanctification, matters of here's what is taught, here how then we should, uh, here is how then we must act and what we must do. In other words, the traditions would mean those imperative commands, those commands, you do this, you do that, you should not do this, you should not do that. Those imperative commands that the Lord instilled in believers through the teaching. He later talks about this in Titus 2, if you wanted to open this up for further study. But here, tradition specifically, very specifically, signifies apostolic teaching. 
Well, where am I getting that from? Am I just making that up? Well, no. In verse two, Paul said, just as I have delivered them to you, just as I have delivered them to you. So Paul delivered the traditions to them. He delivered the teaching to them. And they have, for the most part, up to this point, held firmly to them. Now, not everyone has, but he's commending those who have. Remember the apostle and remember what he delivered to them in Christ. They did that. They remembered the apostle himself and what, what he had delivered in Christ. So then from that, they were to be clear just as their consciences were. Last time we talked about the free conscience, but also not only their consciences, but their practice. And what would help them? What would help them live freely? Well, understanding, understanding. What were they then to understand? Look at verse three. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. That would help drive their ability to persist in the traditions that he delivered. I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. To this, what Paul is referring to is the functional aspect of these relationships related to authority. I'm going to repeat that for you. He's referring to the functional aspect of these relationships related to authority. That is to say, Christ is indeed over every man. Man is in the functional sense of authority, in the functional sense of authority, the head of every woman. God the Father, in the functional sense of authority, is the head of Christ. But that is not to say, let's back up here because we have to be very clear on this. That is not to say that God the Father, in his nature, is authoritative over Christ. Nor is it to say that Christ, in his nature, is subordinate to the Father. That means to be under, authoritatively. For to say this would be to detract from the deity of Christ. And we don't want to do that. Because, in fact, he is equal to the Father. He is the same essence. He is the same being. He is distinct in personhood. So Paul is appealing to this very important point. The fact that the co-eternal, the unity in essence... The monotheism of Christianity, that is that is that we worship one God in three persons. We're not tritheists. We don't worship three gods. We worship one God, three persons, namely Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Yet here you do see that the father is distinct in his personhood from Christ. Not the being, not in his being but yet one in his essence with Christ, therefore one in purpose, therefore unified in purpose. So where this leads next is how the Corinthians, in understanding what Paul said, they were to work out their personal fellowship with one another amongst the church body. So again, he says, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. I want you to understand it, not just saying it. I want you to understand it. The man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. And then he gets into something 
on where this applies. And so the Corinthians are called to work out their personal fellowship with one another in their church. First, Paul goes to head coverings and prayer. Now, there are a few key points that we must disclose related to the culture in the known world at the time, especially in Corinth, because this area of speaking of head coverings, so much has been said about it and so much confusion has ensued because I don't believe that these things are being treated in their context when there is confusion, when people are confused about teaching them. And many who are confused about teaching things should not be teachers. But in this, Paul goes to head coverings and prayer. Now, first, and listen to this, Paul is definitely, he's definitely appealing primarily to the church in Corinth. He's definitely primarily appealing to the church in Corinth. He's speaking to the church there. He is concerned that the man does not disgrace his head prophesying with his head uncovered. Look at verse four. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. Let's deal with that first. First of all, what he's dealing with is he's appealing to the natural order of biblical headship because he just said it in verse three. The natural order of biblical headship as to be understood in the new covenant as taught by the apostles to the church because he's telling them, I praise you, verse two, because you remember me and everything. Hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. So in that sense, it's not the first time the Corinthians are practicing this, and it's not the first time Paul is speaking to them about it. It is that they have received something, and he's correcting a misconception about what they have received. So those are important points. Paul appeals to this natural order of biblical headship. And it's tied specifically to our context, to what he called them to remember in verse two and what had been to delivered to them specifically. So it's been delivered to them specifically, and he calls them to remember it and to remain steadfast in it in their fellowship practice. So that's why I started by saying this is a highly cultural context that we're looking at. It's dealing with the culture there as it is in relationship to the church there in Corinth. Man was not to pray or prophesy with his head covered as this edict was a command for the woman in the church at that time in Corinth, at that time in Corinth. I believe also as you study the Bible, and we'll get into what the rest of these verses say, but as you study the Bible, you have to understand things take place within their covenant context, meaning there's an appeal to one covenant and that one covenant has stipulations that one must abide by or those things have been fulfilled and we don't need to abide by them. Or there's an appeal to things such as the new covenant and those are for us to approach and to obey and to apply and then there are practical matters that flow from there that may be cultural in nature. And so Paul is trying to work that out in this very new and inceptive environment related to the early portions of the New Testament church. But I believe, as we will see 
And as we will continue to see in this epistle, that the man, listen to this, was to conduct himself free from the constraints of society around him. The constraints of society around him. Or, listen to this, to divest himself from reverting back to the Mosaic Covenant. Meaning, God did not want man to go and then take matters of the Mosaic Covenant and enslave himself to those matters as being free in the New Covenant. Well, why am I saying that and where am I getting that from? Leviticus chapter 10, verse 6. Head coverings were normative practice for the priests. The priests were supposed to pray with their heads covered under the Mosaic Covenant. However... It was no longer normative for anyone among men who were believers in the New Testament church as the Corinthians have found themselves in a better covenant established on better promises to revert back to that practice. So then to pray in this way was to bring shame and disgrace upon one's head. It was to bring shame and disgrace upon one's head. Now, you can even think of how this leads up to the Lord's Supper and how we're not to be practicing a Passover because the Passover has been fulfilled. We must practice his supper because he's fulfilled the Passover and thereby instituted his supper. So these matters are not so much as nuanced in the negative sense, but nuanced to help us really think about the covenants that we enjoy. Particularly the new, the Abrahamic, the priestly will come. The Mosaic has been fulfilled and the Noahic, we certainly enjoy stipulations from that. But then how does one bring disgrace upon one's head? In light of what? We must ask these questions. What, what do we mean by disgrace? Is this chauvinism? Is this subjective cultural sentiment? No, he says it. It's a matter of authority. It's a matter of authority, this practice. Look at verse 5. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. What does that mean there? We'll look at it. This authority is not only linked to the created order because Paul talks about that. He talks about nature and he talks about how we are functioning in nature and how God has made us. And even as if you were to look around this room, especially in the church setting that we're in, although we are fellowshipping with one another in a sense, we are certainly looking the part related to how God has created us, male and female. And I believe that this symbol that came from something that was natural and beautiful was in some ways being perverted through the use of or refraint from head coverings, especially in that society. But in verse five, Paul mentioned the woman. He mentions the woman. But here again, let us look to the cultural context. It was normal for a woman in the ancient era of this time especially a woman of high social status. It was normal for a woman of high social status. Remember what we said about the church in Corinth? 
It is a very affluent church. So it was normal for a woman of high social status to use her hair as a means to draw lustful attention to herself. That was normal practice. It was for her the crowning jewel. Her hair was an honor to her in this way. Now, I'm not talking about church practice. I'm talking about societal practice that, if not careful at that time, could infiltrate the life of the church. So Paul has to speak to the nuances surrounding even that. But also listen to this. For her to shave her head was a symbol of disgrace. It would have been a symbol of disgrace. In such a way in a society in the cultural context. But then again, we must look to the book of Moses or the law to see where Paul is referring. There was a time I'm, I'm sad that I did not write it here, but there was a time and I'll look it up. Uh, there was a time where the shaving of one's head uh, with respect to Old Testament uh, practice meant to be claimed as one who is redeemed from captors. So the mark of me being redeemed from a captor, if if that uh, one who needed to be redeemed was female, was to shave her head. You're laying claim to her. You're laying claim that she's redeemed. And so in this, when Paul says she is one and the same of the one whose head is shaved, it's a it's a symbol of redemption under Mosaic law. Well, what's the problem with that? We're not under Mosaic law. Yet to be restored. This was the idea of shaving the head in this context under the law of Moses to be restored within the kingdom of Israel and to be permitted to enjoy life or marry one another under the Jews. So what is the issue? What's the issue with the head shaving? Well, the issue is we are no longer constrained to the Mosaic law. We're not constrained to the law and its practice as its requirements have been fulfilled. Its requirements have been fulfilled. I believe that what I just referenced was Deuteronomy chapter uh, 21, specifically verse 12. Deuteronomy chapter 21, the account of what does it mean for a woman to have her head shaved in that time? We are not constrained to the law in that sense where we have to take for ourselves the law's practices across the board as its requirements have been fulfilled. So then the Corinthian woman, she was not to treat herself as a captive or proselyte under the Mosaic covenant. She was not to be claimed into the Mosaic government. She was not to be claimed and shave her head whether it be for secular purpose or for religious purpose. Because it was to be a crowning jewel for her in the redemptive and holy sense. Here then, however, it was not the hair or head covering on its own. It's how the hair was being used. Well, we talked about this. You're familiar with this. We talked about it regarding food. The food was not the issue. The meat was not the issue. It's what they were doing with the food that was the issue, namely sacrificing the food to idols. 
Paul did not want the Corinthians, listen to this, to appeal to the sensibilities of pagan society. For women could shave their heads there and it would be free. And such an act was typically an act of uh, independence, self-liberation, or even worship. As many of the temple prostitutes would shave their heads. But Paul did not want the Corinthians to appeal to the sensibilities of pagan society as their standard on one hand. But he also did not want to misapply features of Mosaic law to their fellowship, as we find in Deuteronomy 21. So the resolution, it is coming, but the resolution isn't let's all cover our heads if you're a woman. That's not the resolution. That would be a misapplication. He didn't want them to misapply Mosaic law. He didn't want them to fight against pagan sensibilities by gravitating toward the Mosaic law because they were no longer under the law in that sense. They were now under the law of Christ. Instead, for the church in Corinth, honor was applied in this area of the woman not disgracing herself with her head uncovered. For if she did, if she disgraced herself in this way, in the area of prophecy and prayer, now he's talking about practice and fellowship. If she disgraced herself, it would have been no different than shaving her head. If she disgraced herself in this area. Again, in verses six and seven, let's look at this. He appeals to the created order for if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. In other words, Paul is saying, why are you fighting about this stuff? Why can't you just pray and prophesy and do so in a manner where you're not misapplying based on the symbols? Because if it's one thing that's true about Israel, they captured the symbols and made the symbols badges of holiness. Self-righteously so. Instead of looking at the symbols for what they are and saying those point us to the one who created us. So he appeals to the created order specifically in matters of authority. What he's saying here. What he's saying here, if you look at verse seven, for man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man for man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Well, hold on. Woman is created as a help to man. That's what Paul is saying. It must then be to his honor, his help. Not bring disgrace to him and certainly not bring disgrace to God when praying to God, because that's the issue. Doing what we do reverently. You'll see that as we push toward uh, the explanation of the Lord's table. Paul's appeal to the created order in this specific instance did not prescribe the same parallel action for the church today. Again, he's describing a cultural issue using the created order to say, how do we pray and prophesy? 
before the Lord. At the beginning of the New Testament church's existence, so to speak, it was specifically to the point in Corinth how this issue of head covering was used as an authoritative means of social status and cultural identification. Well, where am I getting that from? You had house churches in this time. You had them fellowshipping together. And there were particular ways in many of these churches. And it comes out in the letters when Paul is correcting things here. When Peter has to say some things. When John has to appeal to do not you know, treat one another in a certain way but love one another. When James has to say what he says about partiality and things such as that. There were areas that the early churches dealt with to demonstrate a partiality that was against true fellowship. They would seat one another in certain places. They would put one another in recognition of high social status. They would exercise this favoritism. And you even see it, as I said, making its way here. That people were using these cultural things that in your and my mind go, I don't quite understand the depth of that cultural practice, but they were using it in a way to elevate their status in how they practiced what they did in the church. And Paul is saying that has no place here. If it's a disgrace and if you're going to look at her for having her head shaved, then let her have her hair grown out. You'll see later what I'm saying in a few verses down that Paul essentially says, I don't want you fighting about this. That's the issue. I don't want this to cause disfellowship among you. So Paul is dealing with head covering as an authoritative means of social status and with it and with it, cultural identification as the main thing. Social status and cultural identification as the main thing. I mentioned what I did about the partiality in the uh, early churches because that will certainly, however it's practiced, that will certainly uh, dethrone true fellowship. You can think of many ways that that's put into practice in some of the places that you have been. And some of us might look and say, wow, how was that misapplied to cause disunity? But if you think about it, that matter should not have caused disunity. If the ones who were trying to establish a true sense of fellowship within the life of the church did not elevate it to that status where it would cause disunity. Paul is saying the same thing here. I'll tell you why I say that soon. Paul applies it to where it was because it was causing distraction. That's the issue. That is to say, specifically in the areas of prayer and prophesying. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man. Now he gets to the true nature, nor is man independent of woman. Paul did not want contention in this area. He wanted that early church to pray and prophesy because that's what God required of them. But he did not want them contending about this. 
He wanted the church to experience unity with its fellowship, but particularly males and female, more specifically husband and wife. Because we know the issues that took place as marriage and the idea of marriage was even being desecrated in the earlier chapters we've looked at. But he also wanted them to understand that they did not exist independent of one another. Neither could they do as they pleased if what they pleased caused either one to stumble. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 10, specifically verse 33 and the verses that proceed. Man was not created from the woman as the help to the woman in the sense that we understand that woman was created from man by God as a help to man. Well, how do we deal with all this head covering stuff? It's there. He's talking about the true essence and sense of which man was created and woman was created and they exist for one another. If that's the case and that's the case regarding function, we don't press in so deeply on these issues that we begin to fight each other around these issues. Oh, they're important. But Paul is saying not more important than prayer and prophesying. He's referring to function, whereas by spiritual nature, especially related to the new birth, there's no distinction between man and woman. So then Paul appealed to this fellowship in Corinth to be mindful of authority. In this case, it says because of the angels. Well, where is that? I've heard so many things said with that phrase. Some have said it's too obscure to understand. Some have in the charismatics, they just go all over the place with this. And so many just skip over it. But we have to deal with it because it's there in the text. He says, because of the angels. I think Paul is very coherent in what he's saying. Why there are many appeals to so many beliefs with this particular reference, I do not know. However, I say that humbly because it would seem Paul is referring to the subordinate nature of angels and the possession of authority that male and female believers have over angels. The Bible tells us we will judge angels. So essentially, Paul is saying that heaven itself is keeping watch over these matters. That the angelic, the angelic host is looking at these matters. So what we do in the context of the life of the church is not simply behind closed doors. Our practice must agree with the heavenly court. To follow the authority and the quote unquote traditions Paul delivered to them in verse two was to follow what God desired for the church here as they began to incorrectly Nuance areas that cause further division and misinterpretation among themselves. Lack of head coverings and head coverings became such an emphasis that Paul is saying, I have to deal with the explanation of it. Because it's getting in the way of praying and prophesying. And I believe that it was happening on both ends because I believe that we have a cultural context. We have a context that says how does that play into how people presented themselves in both society and the church within that society? And then we have to understand the Jew-Gentile dynamic. How did people present themselves in the early church comprised of Jews and Gentiles? And I believe you have these competing ideas feasting on one another. 
And what gets lost? Fellowship, prayer, and in the Corinthian context, prophesying. Paul says, if we back up, you see how it's so important to what he says in verse 1. Be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. Now think about this. When we were in the Gospels and when you have studied the Gospels, whenever Jesus deals with something of a societal matter, think of how simple he deals with it. Perfect wisdom, but how simple he deals with it. When they tried to essentially, they were arguing about the, the tax. Think of Jesus' answer. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, render unto God what is God's. And then think of some other matters that come up and how Jesus deals with them. There's a simplicity. Jesus didn't go, you know what, let me hold a political seminar on how to deal with the Roman Empire. No, what Jesus said was, my kingdom is my kingdom. My kingdom is distinct from the kingdoms of this world. I think Paul leads, I know that Paul leads into that first when he says, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. Because if the goal is holiness, there is a simplicity. I'm not saying it's always easy. I'm saying there's a black and white, uh, ideologically speaking. There is an objectivity to being like Christ. And then he says, you, because I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the, to the, to the uh, traditions. In other words, don't lose that. Don't lose them. So Paul appeals to this. He appeals to the fact that they're supposed to remember the traditions, hold fast to them. And what God desired for the church was to not incorrectly nuance areas that caused further division and misinterpretation among themselves. And you know how this is being treated. It's the factions. The factions are driving how people present themselves in the fellowship. So the head covering versus non-head coverings. People were presenting that those things as a badge of righteousness. So then as we have been studying, what Paul then appeals to is freedom. And he appeals to it in this way. It's why I said in the relationship between male and female, man and woman were not to act independently of one another, but rather in concert with one another, especially in the life of the church. Paul appealed to what was consistent and true related to the function God had established in the creation mandate, as well as the Noahic covenant. That is to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Verse 12 and 13. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. And all things originate from God. That's the resolution. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Judge for yourselves. Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Now, we know that there are spiritual matters in play. I'm not saying there's legalistic matters in play. There are spiritual matters in play. That's why I said there's a natural way in which we are presented. 
There are natural ways in which God has created male and female joined together, spiritually speaking, in this thing called the cross work of our salvation, but functionally very unique from one another in many ways. Paul says the answer is to maintain that all of what I just said. The answer is to be free in him, to be joined together in the spiritual new birth, but to be functionally distinct from one another. Because that's how God made us. But yet we are not to act independently of one another. We are to be in concert with one another related to spiritual fellowship, especially how that relates to the life of the church itself. Paul appealed to this consistency. When free and independent, because this is what Paul wanted them to be, when free and independent... Paul ultimately left it to them to decide what was true based on God's truth. He said, I want you to decide. I want you to then decide, be convicted and convinced and move in the direction that God would have you moved. The woman had hair that covered her head, but there seemed to be contention and a contentiousness related to the use of her hair in the society before the Corinthians. As like with food, it had been misused as a seductive tool and status symbol. And it was none of it was concerning the true nature of prayer and prophecy as it should have been practiced in the church. But here's the issue. Here's the main issue. Here's what I want you to take away. I don't want you to take away, what should I do with my hair? That's not what what I'm going in this text. I want you to take this point away. This was not to be a contentious issue. It was not to be a contentious issue. They were not to be fighting about, well, where am I getting that from? Is that just me weighing in? Well, he says it. Verse 16. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. And then as you begin to peek ahead as to what's driving the contention, that's the problem. The problem isn't the head coverings and lack thereof. That's not the central problem. That's the practice that stems from the problem. Well, where am I getting that from as well? I'm going to read it to you as we conclude. It was supposed to be a non-issue. This was supposed to be a non-issue. In the verses that immediately follow, you see the roots of faction are still evident. Well, how are they evident? The strife about these issues were still rearing its ugly head to create discord and disunity in the body of Christ. I'll say this before I read. When Christians are for for one another, these contentious issues never see the light of day. Because what then is my focus? I want to pray and I want to prophesy. But Paul is saying, if I really have to explain what that should look like and how to keep it in focus, here's how it should be practiced. But in your context, you should not be fighting about that. You should not be arguing about head coverings and lack thereof. They should not be elevated beyond prayer and prophecy in the early church's practice. It should be a non-issue. Look at what I say is the central issue. In giving this this instruction, verse 17, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you. 
He's saying, I'm not happy that I had to sort all this out. I do not praise you because you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. You're not even coming together to fellowship. You're coming together to fight. And you're not fighting for the things that matter. You're fighting each other for the things that should not be elevated beyond the practice. Look at this. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, look at this. I hear that divisions exist among you. We're in chapter 11. Divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. How do I believe it? Because y'all are fighting over these issues. I believe it. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For even in your eating. So look, this bleeds into other issues. Head coverings. Food sacrifice to idols, marriage, the Lord's Supper. For, look at this, in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. That's the problem. Me, I want to be first. I want to do what I want to do. One takes his supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. So they're actually desecrating the table just as they are desecrating other things. And Paul says, I didn't deliver that to you. The factions delivered that to you. That's the issue. Let's pray.